This has been a really uncomfortable time to be an American. Many of you know my husband ran for office twice in the city that we live in, and the love and belief in this country and this family is real. And yet when you love something, you have to really look at it and hear what it has to say and how it feels and what's going on for it. And I've always believed that I was doing that. I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, and I went to a private school where I was taught that the Confederate flag and the Nazi flag were of equal levels of evil. And I always thought I understood. I always thought I was listening. But then, like all of us, I watched video after video of Black people in this country being killed by the people who are supposed to be protecting us. In the beginning, I was outraged. I cried a lot. Then two things happened. First of all, I went a little numb to it. And secondly, I realized there were people I associate with, be it through Facebook or real life, who had very different feelings about these events. There were efforts to minimize them and to make it look like the people calling them out were just crazy and loud and overblowing things. And you know what? There was a part of me that wanted to believe that. Believing that, believing what was in front of me was so uncomfortable that I wanted to believe I was overblowing things. So like so many other white people in this country, I stopped saying anything. I was afraid to offend, to be that loud person. I wanted to believe that maybe it wasn't all as bad as it felt. But then the world stopped. There was nothing left to distract us. We all saw that video of George Floyd being murdered by Derek Chauvin, and we all had to stop and look. There was literally nowhere else to run. And we were horrified and enraged. And while there was virtually nothing different about this murder than the murder of, say, Eric Garner when the breath and life was taken out of him by police, this time we were different. We had to sit still and we couldn't. So we've gotten up and we've marched. And me, I've taken some time to ask myself what I can do. What do I have that I can use to affect change? To teach my children to be anti-racist? To give a voice to Black voices? I have a microphone, and today and on so many days in the future, I am going to pass it to the Black women and men in this country who have stories to tell, stories that will be very uncomfortable, painful, and hard to listen to, but stories that we all need to hear if we are going to heal the collective wounds that racism has carved deep into this country. Today, I'm grateful to introduce you to Bree Braggs, founder of Fertile Alchemy. Here is her story of being a Black woman in America and a mother to a Black son and the choices that she's had to make because of both of those things. Thank you, as always, for listening, and here is episode 44 of Look Ma No Hands. I'm Laura Max Rose, mother of two, and you're listening to Look Ma No Hands, my candid dispatches from the front lines of motherhood. I ask the real, tough, honest questions on motherhood-related topics that we're all wanting to know more about, in hopes it will make everyone's journey fulfilling, easier, and more joyful. If you're not a mom, welcome! I want you to know how happy I am that you're listening, and that these topics can be applied to any season of life. I'm grateful you're along for the ride. Welcome back to Look Ma, No Hands. I am truly honored and excited to bring you my guest today. Bree Braggs is the founder of Fertile Alchemy and a new mom to a three-month-old boy. Bree, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so happy to have you on. I mentioned I met you when you were like about to pop. Um, I was moderating a panel on women's health and um, you were 
discussing navigating infertility. And I was like, I have to interview her. I have to interview her. And um, then of course you had a newborn baby. And so I tried to give you a little bit of time. Um, But amidst everything going on right now, what you've been sharing on Instagram has just been so um, pertinent and important. And I thought, okay, now's the time. I have to have her on here to share her story. So I'm going to introduce you and then I'm really going to let you take it away. Um, for those of you who don't know her, Brie is the founder of Fertile Alchemy here in Houston, Texas. She's a certified holistic health coach, Reiki master, and a doula who, while starting her journey to plan for a family, realized that there was basically little to no information on preconception health and set out on a quest to educate herself and her community. Um, with so many black women struggling with fibroids, PCOS, endometriosis, and infertility, Brie is starting a new narrative around fertility by making sure that women know how and why to think about their reproductive health well before they consider having children, if that's the goal. Her luxury products, she has an incredible oil that you need to check out, by the way, um, have been carefully created with fertility and hormonal health in mind to enhance their feminine health. So tell me how many years you've had your company. Um, I started in 2014, so it's been six years now. So we've made, you know, a lot has changed in six years, but also a lot hasn't. Um, We still know that access to information um, for all women, especially black women, is limited as far as, um, you know, for example, the pros and cons of birth control, what it actually does to our body, um, what some of the reasons for infertility are. This is some of what you discussed on the panel that I was moderating when I met you. We still face major um, birth inequity in this country. I believe black women are five times more likely to die in a hospital giving birth than white women. And you can go online and you can research all the reasons why that is, but I'm going to let you take it away and talk about that and talk about your journey into accessing the information that you needed um, to healthy, healthfully deliver your three month old baby boy and that you're passing on to so many others. Yeah, for sure. So, um, my journey, as you mentioned before, all started with, um, me getting married and wanting to, um, start a family and realizing, you know, I got online and there just wasn't a lot of information about, um, preparing your body for pregnancy other than, you know, the standard American, um, doctor, what the doctors tell you, take a prenatal vitamin, exercise, get sleep, you know? Um, and that was it. And I knew there had to be more, especially with infertility rates on the rise. And so I, um, really started the journey more as a journal in a way to kind of post what I was learning and finding on the way. And then it just kind of, um, grew from there. I was also in training to become a holistic health coach at the same time. So it just kind of took off. And then I kind of just went with it. And um, it was very much a reflection of where I was in my life at the time. And as I was doing that, I realized that, you know, like you mentioned, there just wasn't um, representation in the fertility industry. Um, Luckily, the birth industry is, you know, getting more um, diverse every single day. And but fertility is still lagging um, quite behind. So as you mentioned, um, you know, black women are three to five times likely, uh, more likely to die in childbirth. And when it came to having my son, I um, knew that I was actually, you know, statistically safer having him at home than I was at in a hospital here in Texas. And so I, you know, my husband's a scientist. He's a man of, you know, statistics. He's like, well, um, that makes the most sense for us. And so that's the choice that we made. Um, I made that choice because um, 
not only as an African-American, but as a survivor of sexual abuse, I wanted the kind of experience that allowed me to have um, control in a way. I mean, who really has control in labor, right? Like it just, right. <laughs> like nobody really has control, but I needed but to do have, to make us feel like we do. Right. right? I needed yeah. to have as much control as I possibly um, could. And I knew by being at home, I could have that. I had my, my things and, um, my, the people around me that made me feel better. Um, and so I had a beautiful home birth. It was long labor. It was a beautiful home birth. Um, and it was exactly what I had hoped for. And I truly hope for, um, that more black women see as an, as an option, or at least understanding that, um, there is abuse that happens in obstetrics. Um, and that, you know, you, you can advocate for yourself and speak up and out about it. Well, I've seen pictures of you that you shared of you laboring at home. And I'm just like completely in awe. I think I made it, I made it to four centimeters without an epidural, but (laughs) it wasn't very long. (laughs) It was just incredible. Um, Your strength was so, was so evident. And so you gave birth to this beautiful baby boy. And um, here we are. Um, All of us have just witnessed this absolutely horrific um, murder um, of a black man and yet another one right after we saw Ahmad Arbery being shot. Um, and these are visuals that are absolutely traumatizing. Um, and I can only imagine more so when you have a black son and I was hoping and having you on here today, um, to really just have you share about what that's like. And you shared something on Instagram yesterday about all of the extra responsibilities, I guess I could call them that you have in raising a black son that um, many white people, quite honestly, probably haven't really thought about very much if they have until now. Yeah, sure. So um, thank you for, you know, wanting to have the conversation, because I think that's where the work is really needing to start is all of us having a conversation about race and about our experiences. And, you know, um, white people having to listen and to really sit with the the um, sometimes anger, sometimes hurt, sometimes pain, just the response that 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 they're getting, and it's hard. I mean, you know, it's difficult because we all think that we're really great people, <laughs> but we all have right. bond spots, right? So um, just having to sit with that, it's hard. It is difficult, and I realize that. Um, and so I am grateful for those that are really truly deciding to do the work. Um, as far as what is what it's been like, to be honest, it's, um, you know, seeing the video and I think as black people, we've kind of, not that we've been numbed by it, but in a sense we have, because it's, 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 this isn't the first video. It won't be the last video, you know? Um, and it, it's not the first person to die from the, at the hands of police brutality and it won't be the last, unfortunately. Um, and so it's kind of like for us, it's like, this is nothing, um, new. It's just that finally it was caught on video and in such a way that it's not deniable. Um, and I think that, um, in, in a sense, it's like everyone's seeing that and they are bringing into awareness and that so many brands and so many people are like, wow, you know, we have to end this, um, racial inequality, but at the same time, you know, this is not going to be done in a week and it's going to be a long, this is going to be a long process because the unpacking is so much and we have a system. It's, um, a system, systemic racism, like, 
it's not going to be an overnight kind of thing. It's going to take probably, I mean, 50, 100 years, truly, in my opinion, to truly get to the place where it doesn't exist anymore. And that's just because generations have to age out, to be honest, right? Like our kids um, are going to be those, those, the future of what um, helps this country. And so doing the work with them and really getting them to understand because our children aren't born racist, you know, they're loving. If you watch children play, they don't care about color. They learn those things. And so if we can just teach them and keep that there um, and that innocence and that um, just focusing on kindness and love, truly not just saying that, but truly in that, you know, um, creating opportunities for equity and accessibility. Like if you at, at your kid's school, you see that you're, there's a child, a black child that, um, you know, might not is be getting the same opportunities as your child. For instance, they're not in as many activities because they can't afford it, but you have extra disposable income. Maybe you set up a, you talk to your, your school about setting up a scholarship so that that black child can do something, um, be just as involved, but it's just truly creating an equal playing field. I think for our children is what's going to help in the future. As far as right now, I think that it's having this conversation, um, and really being open and willing to learn about um, the racial disparities in healthcare and the workplace. And I mean, it's, it's everywhere. I just, you know, I wish that I could say, name a place where I hadn't experienced some form of racism, but fortunately, you know, that's been my experience. So I, I think that this is, this conversation is a great place to start. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, you said this is uncomfortable and like, you know, it's not going to end necessarily, it's not going to really end anytime soon. And the reason why the George Floyd video brought all this up to the surface and we're all having these conversations right now is because it was like indisputable, indisputable evidence. But it's funny. I mean, I was watching the beginning of a documentary the other night and the documentary started with the Eric Garner video, Mm -hmm, um, which was mm -hmm. a very similar Mm -hmm. death. Um, I remember seeing that video for the first time and I don't, I don't think I've ever been like more shaken by a video until I saw George Floyd. And I've been asking myself this whole time, like, wait, what, like, what was the difference though in the two videos? And, and as I saw the Eric Garner video, like there, there's no difference at all. Um, I think right now, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, we've all been inside our houses for three months. Yeah, that's definitely Um, it. That's definitely (laughs) it. Like you have time to sit with what you saw. You can't ignore it. You can't just scroll past it. it. You know, it's it's in your face. It's in your face. We can't ignore it anymore. And then, you know, everyone, I mean, white people, they're very uncomfortable right now. They're sitting with a lot of feelings we haven't had to sit with before. And it's like, Hey, when is it going to end? I mean, coronavirus, like you have all these people protesting that they want to go get their haircut. And then like the ban, the restrictions are lifted, like whatever, three days later, there's a tendency to not have to sit in discomfort for longer than what you want to be longer than you want to be sitting in it. And, um, I think that's where, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but the Candace Owens video is like the number one most watched video on YouTube right now this week, if you've seen it. Um, I think there's just this desire, this tendency. And if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the video, please don't watch it. Honestly, she makes me like physically sick. So I just don't. (laughs) Um, yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. I, um, but if you haven't watched it, please don't do not give it another 
don't give it another view. Um, but I think our, the reason why people like reach out for that stuff is because they want some way out of the pain. Well, there has to be some reason. Yeah. There has to be some reason why he died. There has to be something. It can't just be somebody being like really, truly racist. Like we can't really be that bad. And it's like, you know what? That's all there is. That's all there is. And we have to sit with it. Yep, exactly. So in an interview with Mama Glow magazine, um, you say that there's so much women don't know and aren't taught about how our body works, that these are things that you learned once you got married and started thinking seriously about having your own family. Why do you think it is? I'm just, I would love to hear your perspective that women don't know as much as they should about how our bodies function. And do you think that race is a contributing factor to that? Yes. Um, honestly, can we just like blame the blame patriarchy? I mean, I, (laughs) yes, absolutely. You're welcome to do that. I mean, to be honest, (laughs) if we, if we want to say why, why we think women don't know as much, like if we knew, if women really knew, you know, when they were ovulating, how to know when they were ovulating without any medication or anyone telling them or an app or anything like that, truly going off of just their symptoms from their body, how powerful, how much power you give that woman, you know, and think about like way back in the, in the day when that's all we were for, right. It's just just reproduction. So think about that. There's, it's an, I believe it's intentional. We, we, we can't know then, then we won't, we'll be able to control that. Right. Yes. And can you tell us more of the ways that that's amplified in the black community? Yeah. So it's just, um, I think that for one, there's reproductive coercion, which is, um, you know, a spouse or not necessarily, usually it's not a spouse. It's like younger, a boyfriend or someone you're with pressuring you into, um, you know, having sex. There's people pressuring you into having, um, getting birth control just so you can have unprotected sex. And I think that, that, that when you go into some of the, um, some of the doctor's offices or, um, there's not enough education about preventing pregnancy outside of just like here, this, there's this pill, take this, and that's going to be the remedy instead of, okay, let me teach you ways to, um, prevent this on your own. And if you decide that you would like to take this other option, absolutely. But I think that it's another form of, I mean, if you want to look at, history it could be another form of gener- of population control um if we keep them on birth control then that's less black babies here i mean black women uh get abortion more than any other race you know but and i don't think that that's necessarily just because they're more promiscuous i think that's because um we live in a system that doesn't su- that doesn't support black women one um and because of reproductive coercion and because there's just not enough education and reproductive wellness in general there's there are a lot of different options obviously for for preventing pregnancy and what i hear you saying is that these op- i mean many women aren't educated on what those options are especially black women so you have birth control um but beyond that there's also other methods of um you know, not getting pregnant, which I think from your experience you've discussed, um, can actually help you remain, um, more hormonally balanced, if you will, um, and more fertile when you're ready to have a child. Would you be willing to discuss what some of those methods are that you've been able to educate yourself on and educate others on? 
Yeah, so it's called the fertility awareness method, or um, also known as the symptothermal method. Um, and it is based on your body's own symptoms. So um, the with the symptothermal method, you go on your basal body temperature, which is your lowest temperature, your body's lowest temperature in a 24-hour span. Um, so to do that, you'll take your temperature first thing in the morning. Um, and then for me, I'm a modern gal, so I just plug it into an app. But some people like to actually um, journal it and write it on a little chart. Um, and so you'll take your temperature every morning. And after you ovulate, you will have a um, spike in progesterone. And so um, your temperature will rise and that will be an indication for you that you ovulated. So when it comes to getting pregnant, um, you can't, you won't really know. Um, it's not like you can use it to predict ovulation in a sense, but you can use past cycles as a way of kind of looking of what could potentially happen that you're in your current cycle. So you also go off of cervical fluid, which by the way, if you're trying to get pregnant um, and you're just stressing out using OPKs or um, you are going more based off of something outside of your body, if you are getting cervical mucus, please, please, please follow that instead of, you know, any other tests outside of your body. I, from my own experience, I was doing OPKs and what I realized was that I was having my, um, the luteal, luteinizing hormone, sorry about that. I was having it spike after I was having the very friendly cervical mucus that you need in order for the sperm to get to the egg. It just helps it get there. It's like a little pal. It just helps it get there. Um, I was experiencing that um, two to three days before I was getting my spike. So I was trying honestly too late. And I think a lot of women, not necessarily a lot, but quite a few women have this same experience and have no idea because they really don't know what's going on in their body. So if you follow, if you're getting the cervical mucus, which by the way, it should be like egg white texture. Um, that is that great, I guess you would say sperm friendly, um, mucus that you want to really look out for. And when you see that, it's time to, as they say, baby dance and have some <laughs> fun because that's the best time. And so then you can also check as far as um, knowing when you are fertile, you can also check your cervix. That's another way. Um, the texture, it'll be different feeling. It, just like in labor, they check your cervix and it's, the texture varies as you get further on. Um, it changes throughout your cycle as well. So you can check your service. I found with most myself and my clients, they don't like to do that necessarily, but I think it's good, especially in the beginning, because it helps you again, learn your body. I think we don't touch ourselves enough. Like, and we I'm don't not know our about, bodies at all. Yeah, it's like no. a phenomenal how like little we know about how, I mean, until most women like describe what you describe, like it wasn't until I was trying to get pregnant that I was like, Oh, I mean, I think I figured out that I couldn't get pregnant at just any time in my cycle. Like when I was 25 trying to get pregnant or 26 See, trying yeah. to get pregnant. Yeah. Like I had no idea there was only like a two day window. Right. Like I was a quarter of a century old in my body and had no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we don't, we, we have no idea. And I was just like you, I have the ovulation, the OPK, the ovulation predictor kit. And I was like, took me nine months to get pregnant with my first kid. I thought that like, maybe I was having infertility issues and I was using those kits and 
not list, like not actually looking at the signs of my body and they were totally off. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's incredible, like how much we end up learning when we, I guess, need to know it or that we didn't know already. Um, if we're lucky enough to have any type of sex education in this country, it's usually like the absolute bare minimum, um, right. never have sex. Or if you do like use 85 different forms of birth control because yeah. you can get pregnant on your period, like yep. it's just completely, but it's completely crazy, the, right? That's the standard. <laughs> yes, it's the standard. And we need to, we need to change that standard. And I'm very glad you are one of the people doing it. You have an oil that you sell, which I need to get. I'm like, I've seen this oil everywhere. The fertile, it's called the fertile alchemy oil, right? Yeah, fertile, fertile alchemy aromatic oil. Yeah. Aromatic oil. So tell me how you created it and, and how it's helped people who have purchased it. Yeah, sure. So um, in the beginnings of fertile alchemy, I was studying herbalism at the time and studying um, aromatherapy. And I was working with clients and I was making custom essential oil blends, um, just making them for them for various reasons, mostly because I see I work with women typically all the same things, which is emotional wellness (laughs) um, and self-care and self-love and confidence. These are all things that I feel like every woman struggles with. Um, And so I was making a lot and fertility and hormonal balance. And so one particular formula was working really well. um, And I I had a client that got pregnant from it. So I said, hmm, um, maybe this works. And so I ended up actually sat on the formula for years and didn't do anything but with it. And then I got inspired um, just by, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the brand Agent Nature. Yes, I have heard of that. Okay. Yeah. So she just started with $300 in her kitchen and I got really inspired by her story. And I just was like, Hey, I'm just going to try this out and do it on my own. And I did. And so it just kind of took off from there. Well, it's um, next time I'm having a baby, I'm going to That's the thing is you don't need it to be for just if you're trying to conceive. It's great for um, hormonal balance. Like I've had women um, report back that they um, are experiencing less cramps, that they are experiencing like less PMS symptoms like anxiety, insomnia, um, that um, obviously they're getting pregnant. My mom uses it. So it's good even in... um, menopausal stage. So I really designed it for like, you know, from your first period until, you know, menopause, like it can be used all around. It's an all purpose. That's incredible. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to get some now that I know that I can use it. Um, whenever another thing that I didn't really pay that much attention to until I had babies was my hormones. Um, Because once they get all out of whack, you realize how important they actually are. That's maybe you're familiar (laughs) having just had a baby. I don't know. But like, kind of when it's all really, um, kind of when it's all really front and center. Um, so as you, you know, you, you've had your business since 2014. So what's the other, the other side of things, I guess, is that you're also a business owner who you're sort of like on maternity leave in the middle of a pandemic when we don't really know what's going on. Um, do you have any plans going forward for what your sort of work family balance is going to be with Fertile Alchemy? Um, Well, so I'm on my second official week back. Um, I started officially back last week and it's been, um, 
it hasn't been the easiest. <laughs> yeah, it's um, a weird time to be working. Yeah, it, and it really yeah. is because I can't just, you know, oh, I found a really great daycare. I can't just send them to like a daycare. And then even, you know, trying to find um, a nanny or something like that, It's you have to consider, do I want someone who's, exp- I don't know what they're doing outside of, you know, my home. So do I want to bring that extra exposure as far as um, with the pandemic going on? And so luckily my husband works from home some of the time and well, most of the time right now. Um, and so, you know, I schedule things around his schedule and then I also have a friend that will come watch him. But as far as like getting things done on the day to day, it's just, you know, it's, it's tough. I wait for his naps basically. Yeah. I, I hear you. I hear you. And I hope that you get to have like the daycare or the babysitter or the nanny sooner rather than later. Um, it gets better, but yeah, I mean, you add like having a newborn on top of doing it in a pandemic and it's not easy. If you could go back and like, say, this is what women need to know about the fourth trimester and its challenges. What would you, what would you tell a friend who was about to have a baby? Um, that you are going to be more tired than you have ever been in your life. And people (laughs) say, Oh, you're going to be tired. Like just, you're not going to sleep. Like I I expected that. But if someone wants to tell me you're going to be more tired than you have ever, so tired that you're going to be like physically sick. Like, you know, that nausea you get when you haven't slept. Uh Yep. (laughs) Yeah. That is, you're going to feel like that for the first, I don't know, probably if, if you don't have a baby with like colic, if you have just like a normal, regular baby, I don't want to say regular, but a baby with no colic, that's like the first six to eight weeks. But then if you have a baby with colic, it could be even longer and harder. Um, and so that was, I would tell them that like you're, you're for at least two months, you're just going to feel physically sick because you're so tired. I think people told me that, but I don't think I understood. I was just like, yeah. There's just, you can't understand. You can't truly understand the amount of it. And then on top of that, your hormones are going to be insane. So you feel like for me, I felt the wired, but tired, you know? So I felt like my adrenals were on max. And so I felt like I could go for a mile, run for a mile, but I physically thought I was going to pass out, you know? And so it was that wired, tired feeling. And then I wasn't sleeping. It took me forever to get to sleep. And the baby has to be up. You know, if you have, I had a smaller baby, he was only six pounds, nine ounces. So he had to eat every two hours. I mean, so by the time you feed him and then burp him and do all that stuff and then get back to sleep, it's time to feed him again. (laughs) So it's so hard. It was so hard. It's the hard, I have, I have to tell you with numbers. So with the first one, I remember, um, like I did none of the, prep. Like I didn't have any like supplements or really any type of self-care like self-care plan in place. It was just the hardest thing in the entire world. I didn't really understand my hormones. Like the whole idea of being hormonally out of balance was completely foreign to me. Then I had my second and I was like, okay, I'm going to go and really prepared this time. I, I had all this knowledge and all these things that I was taking and these supplements and like bioidentical progesterone and all of these like ideas. And, and even like, it's funny, I went in with all that stuff and like, it didn't really make that much of a difference. And I feel like next time around, it's just like, okay, go in with the knowledge. This is really hard. Mm-hmm. And like, that's how it is. I remember just being so freaked out that like, I was so hormonal for so long and thinking that I needed to change that, that like my problem was kind of that I felt like 
there was something abnormal about it, but it's actually just really that hard. Um, and it does get better. It gets so much better just it in does. case you didn't know, but <laughs> it's getting better. It yeah. is already. Yeah. I can tell. And everyone tells me that they're like, it gets better. I promise. I swear it gets better. And so far, yeah. like he sleeps longer now. Like, you know, it's, he's, he's nice and chunky. So we, we don't oh, have to feed him good. every two hours. You know, it's, it's good now, but yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like nothing anybody could ever really describe to you. And it's another one of those experiences where I feel like depending on where you are, how, how do I describe this? Um, we all experience it differently because some of us have three months of paid maternity leave and some of us don't even need to go back to work and others have two weeks of unpaid maternity leave and then they have to go back to work. And there's absolutely a racial disparity between which ones of us have two weeks that are unpaid and the ones that don't necessarily even have to go back to work. And it's like, I say to my husband all the time, like if you were the person if you were the person who had just gotten cut open, because my first one, I had a C-section and then I had a V-back with the second. I was like, if you had just gotten cut open and you had to go back to work like three months later, there's no way in hell like you would be going back to work. Right. Like you would have universal paid maternity leave for at least a year if men were yeah. having the children. Yeah, absolutely. Table and then be beyond cold, that, right? I mean, we take like the people who are really struggling. There is a racial divide between the people who are really struggling and the people who aren't. And we just haven't stopped to listen to those voices. And I hope that especially in this area, that's something that we start to do differently because we've tried for so long to just say like, this isn't a subject that we need to pay attention to. This isn't really happening. And I think recent events have blown the lid off of the idea of acting like something isn't really happening, um, that pain is real and that we need to address it and um, create equity for everyone going through the experience of birthing a child or just being a person in the world. Yeah, for sure. I think that um, motherhood, the just experience of motherhood because of, I mean, you know, of racial issues of racism because of it's different experience. I think to be honest, I think for black women, black mothers, it could be if you allow it to a less joyful experience, because, um, there are so many things that we go through that white women, white mothers don't have to. Um, and I think that that does, if you allow it to, it can stifle your joy as a mother. Um, you know, if I allowed everything that's going on to consume me, which I think before I had my son, I would be far more consumed with everything that's going on. Um, I wouldn't be as great as a mother to him, you know? Um, so I can't, it's something that I have to be mindful of is, you know, my husband and I were talking just earlier today, I would love to go and protest, but because I have my son, that's a choice that, you know, he's so little, what's, what if something happens to me? What if I'm beaten by the police? What if I'm, you know, I'm breastfeeding. I, what if I'm tear gassed by the police and this could happen in Houston, just going downtown, you know, um, I'm breastfeeding. That's a choice that I have to make. And granted, this is something for all protesters right now, but as a black woman, knowing I am walking into something, I have to make different choices. Um, and as a black mother, even more so because I have to think, okay, I can't go to jail <laughs> because not only am I going to go to jail, I, and, and granted, I could just go to jail for protesting, right? But then I might have CPS on my case where a white woman could go to jail for, you know, whatever, maybe it's a DUI and is, CP, is you know, Child Protective Services going to knock on her door? I don't know, you know? 
Um, and no. so I have to be right. I have to be <laughs> mindful of those, the kinds of things, yeah. those kinds of things. Um, and it's really unfortunate as simple as I can't even protest in the way I want to, because I have to think, uh, is there a potential for someone to take my child away or to think that I'm a, an unfit mother, you know? Um, and it goes down just that deep. And then the way that he's just three months old today. And I'm already thinking about, okay, how am I going to have the conversation with him of you're seeing us different and how you have to talk to the police. And sometimes, you know, no, you can't go and play with them by yourself. Mommy has to watch you because, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if the, the, that man is going to have an issue with you playing in his yard. You know, there've been Black people killed just innocently walking in someone's yard. So I can't, I have, there's so many things that I have to teach him. Um, and I'm already, he's just a sweet little angel baby. And I'm already thinking about that. Um, and it's already giving me anxiety because I don't want to have that conversation. I don't think it's fair that I have to have that conversation. Um, but not. yeah. You know, that's where we are. I got the, the talk. My husband got the talk. And we talk about the conversations that we had with our parents. My dad got the talk. I mean, it's a conversation that every single Black person has with their child. I don't know. You anyone. all had talks when you were children from absolutely. your parents to be absolutely. careful. Absolutely. Of yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't, like, I kid you, I don't know a Black person who has not had a conversation with their child about how to talk to um, their police so that you and don't get killed. And it's just, uh, it's insane, but it's just one of those things that is very standard in our culture. And, you know, I, whenever I've seen my husband, I remember being in the car with him the first time he got pulled over here in Texas. And I was, I remember being proud of the way that he handled it. And it was just a simple traffic stop, but the way that he put his arms out so that he could see that his hands were out of the window, the way he had, I'm, I have a weapon, I can still carry a weapon or whatever, and showed his ID. Like he was very forthcoming. And I remember being proud of that. And now knowing what I know, I'm like, that's sick that I was proud that he handled himself well with the police. I shouldn't feel that way. Like I shouldn't be oh. proud of my husband yeah. for you know what I mean for handling himself well when he handled himself like any other person would or like not not in the same way but I mean like he handled himself in a way that he shouldn't have to in terms of I shouldn't have to be super I mean there are white people that go and flip off police officers and cuss them out and do all these things and nothing ever happens to them you know they show up on the steps of city hall with guns with guns my husband can't do that you know it's Texas everybody carries a gun here and and it's like he can't but he can't do that you know he has a license but he can't carry that he can't he that's not what we think we do in our our hospital there is no open carry for us you know there's no open carry which is a different thing for white people i went to cvs and i saw a white man with a huge shotgun one time and i was just like oh my god that's a shotgun in Uh, cvs we're in cvs where are we we're getting some ibuprofen and you need your shotgun. And you need to have a shotgun, not only like a concealed shotgun, but you have to have one in my yes. face. Yes. And I'm pretty sure they asked him to leave though. Cause I'm pretty sure you can't do that. So <laughs> I think CBS um, has like a, like the little sign on the door. Yeah. I'm yeah. pretty sure I remember them asking him to leave, but I was really uncomfortable, but that's something that as a black person, just saying like, we can't even, even though I have the right to, as a Texan, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like, please don't get it wrong. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a huge gun advocate. Like, I just think that there are double standards 
in in the laws for Black people, especially here in Texas, where it's like, oh, everyone has a gun, but I can't carry that same way. So, um, well, you mean we think about <laughs> we think about like the way that. I mean, I've never put my hands out, like being pulled over by a cop, like in my life. So my husband claims that his mom told him to put his hands at 10 and two when he was pulled over by a cop. But that's like officially the first story of a white person that I've ever heard being told that type of instruction. I mean, I was told if something happens, you dial 911, you call the police. Like, yeah, 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 go ahead. I'm going to think about we, for me personally, I think about, okay, what kind of emergency is this? You know what I mean? Is this yeah. basically for me, I'm only going to call the police if it's like a life or death situation or like something of mine has physically been taken or I'm injured because outside of that, if it's like a civil matter, it, it could be turned around. I remember one time and not to sidetrack, but I remember one time and just in Bel Air here in Texas, um, someone was, we witnessed a hit and run and we wanted to bear witness for the people that happened. So we pulled over with them and they were from Russia. They had, you know, like the foreign license that they give you when you come over here to drive. They were only here for two weeks. They were just so excited to go to NASA. They didn't really speak English and they were in a hit and run. And so my husband and I just wanted to let the police officers know, hey, we saw that this was a hit and run so that you can make a statement so that their insurance um, will cover. They won't think that they just damaged this car. And the response that we got from the police officers, you would have thought that we did the we actually hit them, <laughs> you oh know, and God. here we are trying to just be do the right thing and say, I witnessed this crime. But we were treated as if we did the crime. And it was, a, that was a terrible experience for me. And, um, it just left, a, I had recently moved to Houston to so just left yeah. a really bad taste in my mouth. Um, but those are the kinds of things that we deal with. Like I can't even be a witness to a crime. So it's like, I'm, I double, um, I think twice before I am like, Oh, let me call the police because they, it might be turned on me. I don't know. You know? Have you seen the woman in the video who um, John Oliver kind of made her video, like shared her video um, last week? She was talking about how, um, you know, you questioned me about burning down Target and burning down the police headquarters, but like none of this land was ever mine. Right. Like you, you never, um, have you seen the video I'm talking about? I mean, I just, I she was like, if we've been playing Monopoly for 400 years right. and like I didn't get a turn for 400 years. And then like the second I got my own capital and built my own my own um, city, you burnt it down. Like you burnt down Tulsa and you burnt yeah. down Rosewood. And yeah. and she says like, you want me to respect the police and you want me to respect all of these institutions, but like none of these were ever mine or for me. Right. And um, yeah, I mean, if I was helping out at a hit and run and like, I felt like I was in danger because the cop was like treating me like I was the person who <laughs> committed the crime. I don't, I don't think I would, I wouldn't feel like anything was mine either. And I just, I so hope that, you know, we're hearing calls right now to defund the police. And there's a lot of um, debate on both sides about what does that mean? And, and do we really want that? But I, I keep bringing up with myself, you know, I look at the police as we, our house was broken into two years ago. So we woke up with like robbers in our house and we oh called the police. It was horrifying. And like, luckily nobody was hurt and all they wanted was our stuff. So when they realized we were home, which they didn't know, um, they ran out and they got away with some stuff, but they didn't hurt any of us. So we called the police, filed report. They came over. So I look at the police. It's like, yeah, these are the people that I call when I'm in a bad situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
that's not, <laughs> that's the experience that most white people have with the right, police. Right. And that's the experience that either everybody needs to have, or we need to completely rethink what the police is because the way that things are right now is not going to work. I think when people hear defund the police, they think um, that means like the police get zero dollars. But I saw a quote just today. We've been defunding education for I don't know how long. Right. Yeah, I saw that too. And you're okay with that. You're okay. They have been taking, I mean, in Oklahoma, I'm from Oklahoma City. I, you know, some, they didn't have books, like kids didn't have books. But the police department, I remember going to a car show there and seeing this like huge tanker, like military grade tanker, you know, but they have that, but the kids don't have books to take home for, to do their homework. So when I think when people hear defund the police, they think it's like, oh, take all their money. That's not where I, that's not what I'm perceiving. And that's not what I'm hearing. It's let's, they don't need as much money. They don't need a billion dollar budget. <laughs> like that's insane. No, they don't. They it's don't. Insane. And then they're. And, and that money needs to be going back into these communities. Back into the um, communities, to social workers, to community activists, to, you know, people who actually work in the community. Because a lot of the the um, issues that we are seeing are, you know, issues with mental health, with homelessness, with domestic issues. And if you send counselors, social workers, social workers, and then you put money into homelessness, like we can resolve some of these issues, you know, and leave policing to true crime and not just a, you know, suspected forged check. Right. Exactly. Which we should, we should have policing for true crime, but we shouldn't be solving an entire, we shouldn't be in basically, I was going to say enslaving because that's what it is. Imprisoning or enslaving an entire population um, because we're not willing to address these issues that, that exist because of us. Right. I mean, um, like there are, more African-American men and um, locked in prisons than they were that were brought in here from slavery. It's one in three. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, that, like, that statistic to me is like, how, how are, how are people not ashamed by that? You know? Um, well, why I are we, this, yeah. Why are we not? It's I, modern day slavery. It's modern. It's the same thing. It's modern day slavery. It is. They're literally, they're doing work in jail for free. Yeah. So So. exactly what it is. And hopefully this has brought all this to our, these have been issues we've known about forever and they maybe raise an eyebrow for like a day when you watch a documentary, like 13 and then you're done. So hopefully um, this is where the real work begins now that we're all paying attention. Um, And I really, really appreciate again, you being on here and speaking so candidly with me today. Yeah, sure. It's something that I'm, I'm very passionate about. And I think, honestly, I'm glad because I think that all this is happening is I think that it allows me to have a safer space to um, say how I feel and express it. So I appreciate you, you know, allowing me to come on. Thank you. Thank you, Brie. And I, um, I, I hope to continue to provide that um, in every episode of this show going forward. Um, this is not, we're not going back to business as usual, as I've seen so many people say. Um, this is our world now and, um, we're not stopping these conversations until this work is done. So thank you for, for again, for joining me and thank you all for listening. Um, you've been listening to look my no hands. I am your host, Laura Max Rose, and I look forward to joining you again next time.
Thank you for joining me for another episode of Look Ma No Hands. I'm Laura Max Rose, and you can follow me on Instagram at Laura Max Rose to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and the behind the scenes of my life with my own two daughters. If you like this episode and are enjoying Look Ma No Hands, the best way you can help me spread the word is to leave a review on Apple Podcast. This is the single best way to help me reach a larger audience and share these conversations with everyone who needs to hear them. If you love something you just heard, you can also take a screenshot of the episode and share it on social media. There might be someone you know who needs to hear what you just heard, and that's another great way to make sure they do. Thank you for joining me every week. I'm grateful for each and every one of you. More next time. Mom.